Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast. <clears throat> it's been a few weeks. It feels like it's been a few weeks anyway, since I have been back with you, and I am happy to be uh, recording again as we jump into this new year. And I'll explain what this sermon series is uh, here at Urban Village in a moment, but first let me read the passage that I'll be focusing on today. This comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on a folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this of this word. One thing that I find interesting to read or hear about is when a person makes a significant change in their behavior or lifestyle for a particular time period. So, for example, there's a book uh, called The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs when he did his best to literally do what the Bible said for an entire year. Another is a book called The Year of Yes by entertainment titan Shonda Rhimes, where for one year she would say yes to everything that scared her. In the church, of course, we have something like this during the year that we call Lent, but the new year is also a time for someone to say, "Mm, for the next 30 days, I'm going to only eat certain kinds of foods. So I was particularly intrigued by an article, an article I read recently about a class taught by University of Pennsylvania Religious Studies professor Justin McDaniel. The class is called Living Deliberately, Monks, Saints, and the Contemplative Life. And the idea is to give undergraduates some sense of what a monastic life might feel like and what benefits might result. So how did all of this work? How strict were the requirements? Let me quote McDaniel here as he explained the class to a reporter from National Public Radio. He says this, The students do not talk or use the internet, phone, text, radio, or TV at all. They do not talk to their family, unless it is emergency, but they can handwrite letters. They do not speak in other classes or to other professors. They do not use internet or computer for other classes at all. They have to get permission from other other professors, and they can sit in class and discussion sections. But they cannot speak or participate in any online materials. 
It doesn't matter what their other class assignments are, they have to prepare to do it all offline before they go dark for a month. Students get very good at preparing for the month, getting hard copies of readings, having a notepad to leave notes for their professors and other students, but absolutely no speaking and no electronics at all for a month, 24-7. They have permission in emergencies to speak to healthcare or police and can speak to their designated partner in class or me in emergencies. Most never use that option. They have to write in their journal once every 30 minutes, while they are awake, no matter what. And their writing and reflections get extremely interesting and moving. So what do you think? Could you do something like that? Why do people do exercises like this? There may be practical applications. Someone may want to lose weight or ease stress. But I think undergirding all of these activities is a sense of, I want to make my life better, improve it, enhance it. My life, my soul needs a shot of Botox. Some might also say, I just simply want to be happier. Or this may be a reason why you're listening today. You might be thinking, my life feels a bit wayward or pointless. I want my life to have meaning. This is what we're going to explore over the next five weeks. We read in our country's founding documents that the pursuit of happiness is an unalienable right albeit at the time, those rights pertaining only to white men. But what about a life of meaning? What about a life of meaning as it relates to our faith in God? So we want to explore not the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of meaning. For the majority of these sermons, we're going to follow along with a fairly well-known character in the Bible, Moses. But today we're going to look at another individual, one who's not quite as well-known, Koheleth. Now, this is the name that many scholars give to the author of the book, Rereading today, Ecclesiastes. The first verse in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word teacher here is the Hebrew word koheleth, can also be translated as preacher. This verse also mentions, as I just read, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Some of you may know that's a man named Solomon. Traditionally, readers have given Solomon credit for writing Ecclesiastes, but it's impossible to know for sure, so scholars now use this word, Koheleth. Now, when we look at today's text, we learn that this whole change your life by doing something different for 30 days thing is not, in fact, a modern phenomenon. Koheleth does the same thing. He takes what one scholar calls, quote, a test of pleasure, unquote, in order to find the answer to a great riddle. Is anything in life not absurd? So, he takes the first step. The message translation of Ecclesiastes 2.3 says, With the help of a bottle of wine and all the wisdom I could muster, I tried my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. So, as we continue to read, we think some testing. We look at all these verses 4 through 8, and we see Koheleth making some uh, huge sacrifices. He says, I made great works. I built houses and vineyards. I made gardens and parks, planted trees, gathered myself silver and gold, got singers, men and women, delights of the flesh. And you can just hear Koheleth say, hey, I know it's tough, but it's an experiment. It's a faith experiment. Somebody's got to do it. Koheleth gives the results of this experiment in verse 11. Let me read this again. This time it's from the Common English Bible Translation. And he says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had worked so hard to achieve, I realized that it was pointless, a chasing after wind. Nothing is to be gained under the sun. You could argue that all of Ecclesiastes, as you read through the whole book, is a pursuit for meaning. 
And here we see that Koheleth attempted the pursuit of happiness, the extreme pursuit of happiness. So what's the difference between happiness and meaning? In the sermon I'll be preaching at our site, I'm going to show a clip of a TED Talk by Emily Asfahani-Smith, who wrote a book called The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. I'll put this link up on the Podbean page. Basically, she says that in the studies that she's done, happiness is defined as a state of comfort and ease, feeling good in the moment, whereas meaning comes from belonging to and serving something beyond yourself. I think all of this comes down to a basic question. Who are you trying to please? If your only goal in life is to please yourself, only desiring happiness for yourself, then I think one may be on a path that Koheleth was on. Life is eventually pointless. But if your goal in life is something more than that, serving something beyond yourself, that's meaning. For people of faith, that means serving someone beyond yourself. And I put a capital S on that someone. It's when you wake up in the morning and decide that in my thoughts and actions today, I want to please you, Lord. When that is our focus, then, I think then happiness comes along with it. I don't want you to come out of this podcast thinking that I am anti-happiness. But let me say it again. When our first desire, our first hope is to serve and please God, then I believe happiness and joy come along as welcome companions. Now, let me say a word about pleasing God, because some of you may have grown up or have a vision, a picture of a God who is not easy to please. I went out for a run when I was back home in Iowa and ran by a church, and they had on their sign, uh, it said, God is checking his list or is, or is reading his list and checking it twice. As if to say God is this big giant Santa Claus who is not particularly easy to please because he has to check his list twice. But for Christians, if Jesus is our model of who God is, then we see numerous places where Jesus is pleased. The story of Zacchaeus. Jesus is pleased that Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and changes his life. Jesus is pleased when children come to be with him. Children is pleased when the men lower their friend through a roof for healing. Jesus is pleased with a woman who wants to anoint his feet. We see numerous examples of Jesus being pleased. So I don't want us to think that if my desire is to please God and then God is not easy to please, I want us to put away that assumption because I believe that God is indeed easy to please. But however, I also know that if we begin to make this shift in our lives to think we are not only thinking about how I can please myself, but instead how can we please God, which shifts from happiness to meaning, it can be challenging at times. We may not know what to do. We may not always succeed. Certainly we won't succeed. This is the nature of what it means to be human, that combination of being both sinful but also created in the image of God. So this is why I always fall back on this quote that I probably put in my sermons once a year at least. Whenever I do, somebody who hasn't heard it or read it yet is pretty moved by it. It's written by a man named Thomas Merton who was a renowned spiritual writer and monk who lived in the 20th century. 
and he has this to say about what it means to follow and serve God. It's a prayer, actually. And he says this, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. There will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. No matter how many times I read this quote, it never fails to bring me comfort. Because, again, this is a real giant of faith in the 20th century, Thomas Merton. And yet, he also acknowledges that he thinks he is following God. He's not exactly sure if he's doing right. He has no idea where he's going. I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of comfort. But he has that desire to please God. The desire to please God. So if we have that in our mind, we want a life of meaning, which I believe starts with the desire to please God and not just self, to serve someone beyond ourselves, where do we begin? Where do we start? Is there a kit? Is there a book? Is it possible to simply go from the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of meaning and then just do it tomorrow? Well, in the process, I don't think we should lose our sense of selves as we consider this change in mindset. I don't want us to think that I can't think of myself, I can't think of who I am as we begin to reflect on how we can serve God. I think this journey can, should start with you to really think about who you are. Your sense of who you are is not lost as you pursue meaning, as you pursue the... way of pleasing God, of serving God. A good first step, <clears throat> a good first step is exploring who we are and what our place is in the world. How our story fits in with the world's story. Then we can discern how to serve and that makes sense as the step after that. Let me give you an example. So this past week, I read this really wonderful article. Actually, it was a long poem about a girl named Marley Diaz. She's now 13 years old. I was reading something in the Smithsonian Magazine. And really, as I noted, it really wasn't an article so much as an extended poem written by a woman named Jacqueline Woodson, who's a children's literature author, and who was recently named the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature by the Library of Congress. She wrote about Marley, and I'll tell you in a moment what makes Marley uh, unique or what makes Marley worthy of writing a story about. Here's the first stanza of this poem that Jacqueline Woodson wrote about Marley. One child, like so many children, searched the shelves for herself as the center, as the star she knew she was, as the narrator of a brown girl narrative, a story she already knew, herself on the page, and found nothing. Marley was 11 when she first started out, when she first started this whole process. 
She loved books, and while she appreciated books like Where the Red Fern Grows and the Shiloh series, she said in an interview that all the books she could find were either about white boys or dogs, or white boys and their dogs. So let's just stop there for a moment, and I think this is a really key point to lift up and talk about what happened after that. Here's an 11-year-old figuring out who she is in the world. Who am I? Where am I? What gives me meaning? Now, she may not have asked these questions in particular, but I think perhaps some variation, I'm sure, were going on in her head. The star, as Jacqueline Woodson wrote, the star she knew she was, the narrator of a brown girl narrative. She reaffirmed who she was and then started to look beyond herself, to serve beyond herself. And this is where A Thousand Black Girl Books was born. She wanted others like her to know that there are brown girl narratives out there. She was determined to find them for herself and for others. So she set a goal to find and donate 1,000 books about black girls by the beginning of February of 2016. Today, she's at 10,000. She's the reason, and the reason she was in Smithsonian Magazine is because she received a Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award. Here's one of the last stanzas of the poem that Jacqueline Woodson wrote about Marley. Marley Diaz, 21st century hero who knows what the ancestors knew, that through frustration comes determination and innovation, who says, I want to use what I've learned to elevate the voices of all those who have been ignored and left out. And I think this poem gets at this movement from figuring out who we are in the world, what is our story, which is important to do, and then making that shift. As these last two lines of this poem says, I want to use what I've learned to elevate the voices of those who have been ignored and left out, that shift from happiness to meaning, from figuring out who I am to then looking out and figuring out who can I help outside of myself. What are you pursuing in 2018? Who are you serving? Where are you in this story? You are, friends, a chapter, a treasured treasured chapter of God's narrative. Take that in. Reflect on that. Get a sense of how you want to write your story. And then resolve to not simply pursue your own happiness, but how you can serve the one who created you, who authored you. And then by doing so, Elevate the voices of others whose stories are important too. Amen. Well, friends, thank you once again for listening. I will put up uh, in the sermon that I'm preaching live, I have lots of different quotes. The quotes that I read will be up on the screen and some pictures too. So I'll put all of that up on the Podbean page, including that video clip uh, of the TED Talk. You would think after I come back that I would then be preaching a few series in a row, a few sermons in a row, uh, but I am not. Uh, I'm actually headed this week to Houston, Texas. A group of folks at Urban Village are going down to continue with the uh, cleanup 
and of uh, rehab of houses in Houston uh, for Hurricane Harvey. And so I'll be doing that this weekend, so I will not be around. Uh, but I will be back after that. And so uh, I hope that this new year is one that is blessed for you, one that has pursuit of meaning. Uh, and I look forward to being back with you in a couple of weeks. May the peace of Christ be with you.